0: Beloved, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four and verses fourteen through sixteen, uh, Hebrews four fourteen through sixteen. This is uh, what I would call a word uh, in season. Uh, some encouragement to you from God's Word. We will uh, once again uh, start up our series in Romans next week. We'll be in uh, Romans chapter seven, and uh, very much look forward to beginning that uh, once again. As we look towards the fall, well, please stand with me for the reading of God's word from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we pray that you would... Illumine our hearts by your Spirit, that we would hear, understand, and apply by grace through faith all that is here for us. We pray that we would see Christ with the eyes of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Do you ever get tired of the spiritual battle? Do you ever get tired of the spiritual battle? The battle against your own sinful flesh, for instance. The battle against the temptations of the world that are always coming at you. Oftentimes, we must admit we, we bring on ourselves with all of our screens and such. But do you get weary battling all the temptations that are coming to you? All of the hostility that you might be experiencing amongst family or friends or co-workers or fellow students who do not care for your Christianity? Do you get tired of the battle against apathy or cultural accommodation? If so, you are not like every other Christian. You are not unlike the believers I was with last week in the UK, for instance. They are just... A bit farther along than we are as it concerns their culture. We still, at least here in the South, have a kind of Christian facade. There's still something in the culture of, of Christianity, but it is, it is it's small and it's waning quickly. Uh, but there, there's, there's none. Uh, there's no real respect. I was sharing this morning in Sunday school uh, that I was at, uh, Hans and I were at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. And this is the the college uh, where many uh, 17th century Puritans attended uh, in the 1620s and 30s. And uh, one of those was Thomas Watson. And, of course, you hear me quoting him often. He's one of my favorite Puritan authors. And so I was thinking of uh, uh, how wonderful uh, it was to be there. And I was reflecting on all these great preachers that came through Emmanuel College in the 17th century. And then uh, my son said, hey, Dad, come over here and look at this. On the wall was a picture of the chaplain standing next to a drag queen who had just spoken in chapel. This is how far things have gone in England. We see the beautiful spires. We see the lovely churches. We uh, think about all that we read in our history books, but the culture has totally and utterly rejected historic Christianity. Of course, there's a dying version, which doesn't believe the Bible, just as there is here in many of the mainline churches. But we must admit that at times, it's it gets tiring fighting that spiritual battle. Perhaps that's you uh, this morning. Well, if it is, then you're not like the first-century Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews was originally written to a persecuted first-century church who are tempted to give up the spiritual fight, to quit the race, to let go of their confession. Many of you have been in races where you are so tempted to quit for whatever reason. Maybe it was a, a side ache, or maybe you weren't feeling well that day, or maybe you were just tired and you thought, why am I doing this? And so you, you are tempted to stop. And sometimes we, we feel this way in our Christian lives. Tired of fighting against sin and worn out by the spiritual battles. Is that you this morning? Perhaps you feel worn down by besetting sin, patterns of sin in your life that you've been fighting against but seem to have no victory over for whatever reason. Maybe it's you're tired because of personal loss, loneliness, confusion. Perhaps the present social upheavals, all that's taking place in our world, in the government, and in other countries. And it's, 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 it's discouraged you. You're fearful. Well, maybe you've been tempted to think that there's something better than Christ out there. Well, the writer reminds his first century readers this morning and reminds us that there's nothing better than Jesus Jesus Christ provides us with all that we need in this life and also in the life to come. In the early chapters of Hebrews, the inspired writer demonstrates that Jesus is better than the angels. Indeed, He is the eternal Son of God. The writer to the Hebrews writes in those early chapters again that Jesus is better than Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. He's better than Moses because He is the the true uh, mediator between God and man, uh, he is better than the old covenant sacrificial system and all of its corresponding ceremonial laws. Jesus is better than all the Old Testament prophets and priests and kings because he, as the eternal Son of God and Savior, is the final prophet, priest, and and king. Jesus is better and more precious than anything in this world, and he alone is our salvation. Whatever it may be, whatever draws our hearts. Jesus is better. Beautiful 17th century German hymn that we sang earlier, Fairest Lord Jesus, communicates this beautifully. It's a simple hymn. It's not a a hymn with great theological depth, but it's a hymn that expresses love for Christ and expressing that He is better, He's brighter, He's purer than all the things we see in the world that we're impressed by. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, And all the twinkling starry host, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Jesus does indeed outshine and outglory all of creation. Nothing compares to him. We see superstars in Hollywood and in the athletic world rise up. And they're on top of the world and are getting so much glory and fame and money. And then eventually they fall down. And people seem to celebrate the fall as much as they do the rise. But with Christ, there is no fall. He is the perfect Son of God from all of eternity. Nothing compares to Him, He is the majestic King of glory. Some may think that such a resplendent king must necessarily be aloof and unapproachable to his subjects. Some may think that such heavenly royalty could never truly care about us, could never be concerned about our struggles. We were just over in the UK, and of course, we uh, saw many things connected to kings and queens. And, you know, I got into the taxi in London. I said to the taxi driver, Yeah, we're having tea with the queen this afternoon. Hope she's ready for us. Of course, we're not having tea with the queen. I. I'm in no place to have tea with the queen. Who am I? But Jesus isn't like that. He's a king that welcomes our presence. He cares about us. He's concerned about every struggle we have. In our text for this morning, we learn that Jesus cares, and he doesn't only care. He deeply sympathizes with our weaknesses, He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he understands our struggles against outward temptation. Dear believer, please hear this this morning. I hope this is a word of encouragement for you. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you with an eternal love, a steadfast love, an unmovable love. You have known different kinds of love in your life, and often you've been disappointed. But with Christ, there is no disappointment. His love is is perfect, and He loves you deeply and more than you can ever imagine. And He bids you, in these verses that we're looking at this morning, to draw near to His glorious throne of grace, not timidly, not fearfully, not apologetically, but boldly, with courage and confidence. Why? In order to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When do we ever not need mercy and grace to help in time of need? If we think there's one second of our lives where we don't need mercy and help and grace in time of need, then we don't understand our own sin and our own dependence upon God. We have access to the throne of grace, and we are called to boldly approach this throne of grace through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you need mercy and grace this morning? It's offered to you. It's given to you at the throne of grace where your Lord Jesus Christ is. And he's not miserly with his mercy and grace. For those who are united to Christ by grace through faith, who have received him as their Lord and Savior, who are in him by grace through faith. Jesus is a never-ending fountain of mercy and grace. It never runs out. It never runs dry. His grace is sufficient for whatever trials you face or you are facing or will face. His grace is sufficient for you, and he offers it to you. At the throne of grace. In volume one of the works of Robert Trail, a Scottish minister who lived from 1642 to 1715, he writes this, quote, There is nothing that ails a poor believer in Christ. There is no groan that riseth from his distressed heart, but it is immediately felt at the tender heart of the Lord Jesus, at the Father's right hand. We would groan and sing with the same breath if we believed this firmly. We would groan and sing with the same breath if we believed this firmly. Well, my prayer for us uh, this morning, Christ Church, is that in view of Christ our Savior, in view of this throne of grace, and knowing his tender love and compassion for us, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our struggles, that we would sing for joy even as we groan. You know, there's, there's something wonderful about being... Uh, you know, let me back up. When I first went to my previous congregation, it was the custom... Now, the church was only 18 months old, and so there weren't very many traditions. Um, but it was the custom of the minister to sit in the front row the entire service while other people led, and then he'd walk up and preach and then walk back down after he preached. Now, there are a lot of problems with that, different problems with that. But one of them is that the minister, I believe, ought to be before his people. And he ought to look into the eyes of his people that he is ministering to throughout the week and to see both the joy and the sorrow, the smiles and the tears. Because there is nothing that impacts biblical preaching More than, now, of course, there's the study of the Word and the gospel. Yes, I understand all that. But there's also the reality of what's happening in the lives of God's people. And when when God's people are weeping over a hymnal and singing while groaning and expressing faith in that way, it impacts the preacher. To know that it's not my job to come up here and do a song and dance but to minister God's promises to you and to encourage you and to give you the word of God but Christ is here with us this morning and as we groan as we contemplate the trials of our lives he is with us and ministering to us he's our great great high priest who has conquered death and hell for us so hold fast dear believer Hold fast to Christ, hold fast to the confession, and draw near with confidence. Not confidence in your own works, not confidence in how well you did in your devotions last week, not confidence in your family heritage or your religious pedigree. Well, my great, 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 great grandfather and all the ones after that were all preachers. So, of course, I'm a Christian. Well, no, family heritage is wonderful, but we must be in Christ. Don't put your confidence in anything but the Lord. May He be your confidence as you draw near with confidence and faith in Him. Well, there are two headings uh, in our outline. The first one is the basis of perseverance, and the second one is the imperatives for perseverance. The basis of perseverance and the imperatives for perseverance. So first of all, the basis of perseverance, the high priestly ministry, uh, ministry of Jesus. What's the basis of our perseverance? What's the basis of us running the race with endurance and continuing on, even though we are at times tired and battle-weary? The high priestly minister of Jesus Christ. Look with me again at verses 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin one of course can't miss the myriad allusions to uh, the old testament here and all throughout the book of hebrews especially uh, in the priestly book of uh, from the priestly book of leviticus indeed in many respects uh, hebrews is a kind of new covenant commentary on the book of Leviticus, as well as the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Notice in verse 14 that our Lord Jesus is referred to as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does this mean exactly? What does it mean that Christ has passed through the heavens? Well, the high priest in ancient Israel offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. He was a kind of mediator appeasing the wrath of God through animal blood sacrifices. And, of course, once a year, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple on a special and holy day called the Day of what? The Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first offer an atoning sacrifice, blood sacrifice for himself because he himself was a sinner. And then he would offer a sacrifice of blood on behalf of the people. He would go also through a ritual cleansing with holy water and wear holy vestments while fulfilling his sacred duties. The high priest would then enter the inner sanctum of the tabernacle or temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to be mysteriously uh, concentrated at the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the Ten Commandments as well as a jar filled with manna that God had sent from heaven, two testimonies of God's faithfulness and mankind's great need for mercy and grace. What would the high priest do next? The high priest would then offer an animal sacrifice for the people and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat and upon the outstretched wings of the two golden angels on top of the ark. Now, this was a solemn and weighty occasion. And if he were to mess anything up and go in there in in, in some kind of an irreverent way, He would die immediately. In fact, they put bells as tassels on his robe so that if they stopped hearing the bells ringing around in there, they knew there was a problem. And there was a rope attached to him so they could drag him out because they wouldn't dare go in there. We have this solemn and weighty occasion as God's wrath was propitiated or appeased or turned away from the people of Israel through the shedding of of blood. Now, while in obedience to uh, the Lord for these sacrifices and for the appeasing of his wrath for a time, these sacrifices never satisfied God's justice fully or propitiated his wrath. No, the blood of bulls and goats would not do. Rather, they foreshadowed or anticipated. The blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the only one worthy to purchase full and final redemption for guilty sinners. The preacher and hymn writer Isaac Watts put it this way quote, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name. And richer blood than they. You see, dear ones, Jesus, our great high priest, is the glorious and perfect realization of the Old Testament high priesthood. For he doesn't merely go into the Holy of Holies in the temple with the blood of animals, a mere shadow or copy of the reality. Jesus, it says in verse 14 of our text, passes through the heavens into the ultimate holy of holies, and offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. He goes through the heavens into the ultimate holy of holies before God, and he offers his very own blood. He is priest and sacrifice. He is the Son of God. As such, he is our mediator. He is our representative. He is both Priest and sacrifice, turning God's wrath and judgment away from us, indeed bearing it himself on the cursed cross. So Christ, the high priest, is also the Lamb of God. He is crucified, and he is crucified for our sins, not for his own sins, because he had none. He was without sin, thus becoming the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look with me in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter nine. at Hebrews chapter nine. We have a wonderful summary of these ideas in Hebrews chapter nine, beginning in verse one. this idea of the, the foreshadowing of these things in the earthly temple and in the reality in heaven and the ultimate holy of holies. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, But he, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the Holy of Holies is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured an eternal redemption. This, of course, reminds us that God's covenant of redemption took place before time when He purposed our redemption and Christ accomplished that redemption and He went before God having accomplished it. And He secured that eternal redemption for us. Now look with me at Hebrews nine twenty three through 28 He doesn't have to sacrifice himself over and over and over again because there's that once-for-all sacrifice of himself, which has been accepted by God, and he's there on your behalf. The hymn writer said it well when he said, our names are written in his wounds. Think of that. Your name written in the wounds of Christ, who is at the right hand of God and represents you. He shed his blood for you, a once and for all sacrifice that was accepted by God the Father. And if you are in him, you have been accepted. And your place in heaven is as sure as Christ's place in heaven. Dear ones, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He came from heaven to earth to satisfy all the requirements of God's law, and he did so with perfection. And then he gave himself as that perfect, spotless sacrifice for our wretched sin and guilt. He is high priest and he is lamb who was slain. He is our mediator in heaven right now. As we enter his presence on the Lord's day, and we hear the call to worship, we should think upon this, that Christ is is our worship leader, and we are in him. And we ascend the hill of the Lord, not with our own righteousness in hand, but robed in the very righteousness of Christ to worship God. He has done all of this for us. He's done all of this for you. If Jesus is for you, who can be against you? dear believer. His blood and his wounds cry out. On our behalf, they cry mercy. They cry mercy every time you sin. The wounds of Christ, the blood of Christ, cry out mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. They cry. Grace, mercy and forgiveness. For the sinner. So, how are we to respond to this good news? Do we say, Well, that's great. Thank you, Pastor. Now I can go out and and live a crazy life according to the flesh, and uh, I can live it up and I'm gonna be forgiven. I love to sin, God loves to forgive, we make a great team. Is that the approach to the Christian life? Does someone even really know Christ if they respond with that kind of attitude? Well, no. In fact, the book of Hebrews earlier talks about re-sacrificing Christ all over again when you approach things in that way. Just because someone professes faith in Christ doesn't mean they are a Christian. So how are we to respond to this good news? How are we to appropriate this grace in the midst of trials and suffering in order to persevere? How How do we respond to this good news when we are in the spiritual battle and we are weary? Well, God's Word tells us, this leads us to our second point, the imperatives for perseverance, holding fast and drawing near. Holding fast and drawing near. And can I just say, uh, by by way of, of, of introduction to this point, we live in what is perhaps, I think it's really not even debatable, the most distracted age in the history of the world. How can it not be? We've got screens in our pockets, on our desks, on our walls, in our kitchens. We are constantly distracted by the world. I uh, was telling my wife yesterday that I think it's probably time for another series on uh, technology uh, from a Christian worldview because it's so easy to get swept up in all of this. And we take our eyes off Christ. And, and so part of why we're weary in the spiritual battle is because we've opened ourselves up. We've made ourselves so vulnerable to the world, to all of its distractions. Rather than taking time to spend with the Lord uh, in the mornings, uh, to pray and to read the Word and to read a good Christian book or a biography, to, to turn off the screens, to unplug to get disconnected from the world so that we can be connected to to God by His Spirit. But these imperatives for perseverance are important. Holding fast and drawing near. These are the two imperatives, holding fast and drawing near. Look at me again at our text. It says, to hold fast our confession. And then in verse 16, we are exhorted with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First of all, hold fast our confession. The confession referred to here is not simply uh, the individual's profession of faith, a kind of personal testimony. No, this confession, holding fast to our confession, actually uh, refers to doctrine. It refers to what we believe, to the sound teaching that constitutes historic biblical Christianity and true discipleship. I believe it's one of the greatest needs for uh, the modern church today is to be grounded in sound doctrine, that we would know what we believe and why we believe it so we wouldn't be so easily led astray by the arguments of Darwinians and the, the arguments of, of the world that to seek to, to draw us away from our Christian convictions. Remember, these first century believers, these Hebrews, were tempted to forsake the true doctrine of the gospel and to go back to the ceremonial law because that was safer for them to do so. But the writer to the Hebrews reminds them of the superiority of Christ, their great high priest, and what he accomplished on their behalf. Why would you want to go back to the shadows of the old covenant when you have the reality of Christ himself? It's really what the book of Hebrews is about. In light of the truth of their confession, the writer of Hebrews exhorts them and exhorts us to hold fast to their confession, to the sound doctrine that faithfully explains and expounds upon the truth of God's word. You know, I was really sort of overwhelmed when I was spending time with God last week. I forget where it was exactly but I was kind of overwhelmed with this sense of what a blessing it is to be able to open the Bible and to have objective truth in front of me when there is so much confusion, so many lies in the world. I can open up my my Bible and there is the truth by which I can be comforted and taught as a child of God. What a comfort and blessing that is. Of course, as with Christians throughout the centuries, we hold to creeds and confessions that faithfully summarize the truth of Scripture, And so when it, when it says to hold fast your confession, which we know is sound doctrine, it's not uh, uh, wrong to think of our own confessions of faith that we have, which are summaries of, of faithful Orthodox doctrine. As Reformed and confessional Presbyterians, we hold, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith in the larger and shorter catechisms, faithful expressions and summaries of historic biblical Christianity. Indeed, these confessions and catechisms are gold mines of God's truth, helping us to get our heads around the truth of Scripture and to help us stave off false doctrine. Beloved, we need to familiarize ourselves with these Reformed confessions and teach them to our children. The winds and waves of our culture are quickly eroding the shores of orthodoxy, not least in the sexual revolution. That is an attack on God as creator and king. The pressures are great. The pressures are great upon you, dear believer. But they were great on the early church as well. In fact, even more so because their lives were under pressure of being lost. But we are to to hold fast our confession. We are exhorted here to hold fast our confession. John Owen, uh, in his magisterial commentary on Hebrews, he states, quote, It is our duty in the midst of all opposition to hold our profession firm and steadfast to the end. It is our duty in the midst of all opposition to hold our profession firm and steadfast to the end. Members of Christ Church, all who are gathered here today who profess the name of Christ, you are called to hold fast your confession. That's an imperative regarding your perseverance in the faith the growing pressure to relinquish your faith and your belief. You must stand firm. You must hold fast to the truth that there is only one God and not many. You must hold fast to the truth about Christ and what He's done to save sinners. You must hold fast to the truth about creation and marriage and gender and sexuality and worship and the mission of the church and a whole host of other things. Hold fast to your confession until the end. For you, dear one, have a great high priest, the blessed Son of God. You know, one of the wonderful things about being over in ancient cities in Europe is all of the wonderful church history. It's, a, it's history from a bygone era. Sadly, there are few these days who would appreciate uh, this history from uh, a view of piety. But there are a lot of wonderful stories. Uh, that are all around um, that the architecture and the history speaks, uh, one um, episode from church history uh, comes from Polycarp, who is the Bishop of Smyrna from one hundred sixty a d one sixty a d He was under great persecution, and as an old man, he was brought into an arena and A preconsul urged him and said, "Swear." Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. He responded, Eighty six 6 years have I served him, "'and he has done me no wrong. "'How can I blaspheme my king and my savior?' "'I have wild animals here,' the preconsul said. "'I will throw you to them if you do not repent. "'Call them,' Polycarp replied. "'It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good "'to turn to what is evil.' I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That is the antiquated form of bring it on. Feed me to the animals. Burn me at the stake. I will not recant. I will hold fast the confession, no matter what you threaten me with. Polycarp was indeed burned at the stake and entered into the presence of his beloved Savior. It was the same story for Ridley and Latimer and Cramner in 1555 when Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, burned them at the stake. There's a memorial there in Oxford that's dedicated to that. They stood firm until the end. Secondly, we are called to draw near to the throne of grace. What does this mean, to draw near to the throne of grace? It means to pray. It means to pray. It means to pour out our souls to him. This is not the kind of prayer that we often find ourselves praying, Lord, bless this person, bless that person, help this person, help that person. Amen. This is a biblical pouring out of one's soul to God, full of praise and thanksgiving and requests for oneself and for others. This is setting aside time, an appointment with God to pray. This is what it means to draw near to the throne of grace to approach God through the mediation of Christ in prayer, because Christ is our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and understands the temptations we face because he himself has experienced them. We go to the throne of grace confidently. And it is at this throne of grace that we receive mercy and find grace to help. You know, there are those that are in this world that perhaps you have encountered where, You go to them and you express your weakness and you get pounced upon. There's no grace whatsoever. Jesus isn't like that. He's full of grace and kindness and compassion. So let me ask you, dear one are you hurting this morning? Whatever it may be, whatever challenges you're facing, are you hurting? You feel crushed and overwhelmed by life right now. Is indwelling sin or the pressures of the world, the flesh, and the devil, causing you to doubt or even to give up? Here is God's word for you this morning. You have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God, who sits at God's right hand, who has given his life for you, and who has purchased your redemption with his very own blood. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you. He intercedes for you. His wounds cry out for you. Mercy, mercy, mercy. So hold fast to that confession and boldly go to the throne of grace confidently, not in your own works, but in the works of Christ, crying out to the Lord for mercy and grace, confident that he will provide this mercy and grace to you in abundance. Go to the throne of grace in prayer, There you will find help in time of need. Jesus became one of us. He himself experienced profound humiliation and suffering on earth. He can thus sympathize with your weaknesses this morning. And he understands the struggle that you're having, whatever it may be. He is here for you. Don't be fearful or bashful or apologetic about going him now. He has purchased the privilege for you to do so with his very own blood. Listen again to Robert Trail, the Scottish preacher. He writes this quote, "There is not a crumb of saving mercy that comes to any perishing sinner, but by Jesus Christ. He welcomes you. He welcomes you, dear one. Go to him. Jesus is better. Go confidently to the throne of grace this morning. There you will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you give us grace and mercy in such abundance in our time of need. And so Lord, help us by your grace and your spirit to go confidently and boldly, knowing that our salvation has been purchased by your blood and we've been given access, free and full access to your throne of grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing together.